Hey there, this is Ross Miller with The Verge. After four years on public access, The Chris Gethard Show is moving on up to Fusion TV. Uh, The Chris Gethard Show is maybe the most bizarre and experimental talk shows I have ever seen. It's really hard to describe. Anyway, I had a chance to sit down with Chris about a week before his first episode. Uh, So we are now, uh, just for perspective, we are sitting in, uh, what did you call this room again? We call this The Loft. The lot here at our here at our offices and studio, but this is basically we told everybody uh, who watches our show that if you sent us something uh, from your home or from your life, we'd build it into our set. We kind of want it to have an authentic feel, so I asked people to mail us things, and this is the room where they have sent all the strange crap from their homes, and it's it's a visually very overwhelming place, which I'm excited about. Yeah, this is an amazing, colorful assortment. Um, and if you hear any background noise, that is actually the set being built right now just below us. Yeah, there's actual power tools you may hear. And then also, I think directly to our right, there's a whole bunch of guys hooking up a Skype system into our control room as well. So there's all sorts of stuff wow. with that. And uh, we film a week from today. So it's all coming down to the last minute. No but pressure. I'm no pressure. super excited. Uh, so let's let's start there. So, um, you know. I, I'm curious about how this Chris Gether show is going to be different than before, but at least in the build-up to this week, how, does it feel any different for you? Is the pressure different? It's interesting. It comes and goes, and I think the pressure's definitely there, but by and large, it's been very healthy and very motivating and positive. Um, there's definitely been a few moments of stress where I've been like, oh my God, can can I pull this off? Not even can we, because the people surrounding this show and the people kind of help people who kind of help lift it up and get it to where it needs to go. I have really a lot of faith in them. It's mostly just in myself. It's mostly just like, man, because, you know, we've been, we, we did the show on public access for about four years and we were at the UCB theater for another year or so before that. And uh, it's like for years, for like five, six years, I've been talking a real good game about just like, man, get, get me on TV, give me a real chance to do it. And I'll just prove a lot of people wrong. I'll prove a lot of things. And now I have I have to actually go do it. So it's like, oh, <laughs> uh, I talked a lot of smack along the way. And now I have to actually deliver. So there's definitely been some concerns in my mind at times. But I'd really, it's weird because I've had to kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, like I've had to do some soul searching and realize like, oh, no, I said those things because I actually meant them. It wasn't just trying to create a stir. I actually really think that. I really think we do something unique with this show, something different with this show. And uh, we somehow miraculously wound up on a network that seems to want to let us really go for broke. So everything's in place to try to try to prove all the smack talk had some validity. So see what I can do. And you said it was unique. Uh, how would you best describe the Chris Gethard show to a complete uh, newcomer? Well, I think I'd tell a complete newcomer like, It's a talk show, and you'll see the things about talk shows inside of it. So at the very basic level, I'll tell them, like, it's a really weird talk show. But I think the things we try to do that make it really different are twofold. And it's all about kind of, like, audience accessibility to me. Like, interactivity-wise, I want them to really feel like they can leave their fingerprints on it. So we just relentlessly try to think of ways that some kid watching at home can have an actual effect on the show and not in a small way, in a really direct, discernible, visible way. I I want it to be a show where you know you can call in or you can send us something and it'll actually leave its mark. Like like we were talking about the set, for example. I love knowing that like 
however many items we have here, but like hundreds of things have come in. And that means that all these people who have sent us a thing get to watch the show and actually see a thing they sent in be a physical part of this show that they like. I think that that's like a cool thing and kind of speaks to the modern era of, of communication and how people experience entertainment. And I really do think like, now I'm going to get excited and start to ramble, (laughs) but like, I think TV is traditionally like they send it out and then you watch it in your living room and that's the experience. But that's not really how young people experience things today. Now they get to comment, they get to interact, they get to guide it. And I want to be a TV show that embraces that. And then I think the other major difference between us and other talk shows is we really try to do things that disarm ourselves and the audience at times. Like I want to, I want to present something where like, it's clear we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's clear that the celebrity is really letting their guard down and experiencing something that they're, you know, it's not guided by a publicist. It's not guided by a pre-interview. You get to see these people and how they really react to things. So sometimes the things are really sort of conceptually out of the box or intentionally kind of strange. Um, And a lot of that is that I really like the idea that in the midst of something that's like really out there, even something that's kind of a disaster, you start to see people react in ways that you don't usually get to see on TV. I really just love genuine reactions. I love reacting genuinely. I love having real conversations. Sometimes those are in shows where I'm just talking to kids on the phone. And sometimes it's like, let's create some big spectacle so we can see how this celebrity deals with it. And um, (laughs) it's just an effort, I think, to just kind of make things maybe feel a little more human and a little more vulnerable than television usually does. Yeah, you're talking about uh, the human connection, the live connection, kind of also like the new medium. You're embracing the internet, you're embracing people kind of seeing it online. Uh, and then you go to you go to cable and you go to Fusion. Um, are there is Fusion giving you any limits to beyond what cable access gave you, which was surprisingly little? A very small handful of limits. Public access, there were really no rules. Really, the only rule we had was just don't get naked in the studio. Like, if you need to get naked, pre-tape it, because we don't want naked people putting their naked parts on our stuff in the <laughs> studio. And that really was the only rule. Like, there were a few others, and they didn't even hold us to them. Fusion, there's a few more. Like, Fusion, I think is the right place for us in many ways. They are clearly an underdog network and we're an underdog show. And I think they're really staking out their claim. And I'm really psyched to be a part of that because that's always kind of been my attitude. But, you know, at the end of the day, they are co-owned by Univision and ABC. And that ABC thing kicks all the way up to chain to Disney. Like technically we are under the same corporate umbrella as Star Wars now. Does your check have a mouse on it? I don't know. I haven't. I, well, I think it goes through Funny or Die. Funny or Die is our producer. I don't know if Funny or Die's check has a mouse on it, but I pray that they do. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> Mine has not yet. Um, but yeah, with Disney, you're going to run into some stuff. Like a lot of it is like a lot of it is like, well, if you're going to accept things in the mail or you're going to mail, mail people stuff, they need to sign a release of a certain mm-hmm. type. There's certain things like that that are like they haven't told us we can't do anything yet. They have told us that we need a little bit more paperwork, right. which is by a little bit more, I mean, we never had any ever because <laughs> it's annoying. Um, and now there is some. So there's certain, I think it's more, they haven't told us not to do anything. They have told us to just be accountable for what we do a lot more than we ever have. And that really does make us kind of consider a lot of the stuff that we do uh, more than we ever have. I, I tend to get manic and just like make a web video and be like, we're going to do this thing where everybody come do this. And then it just happens. And we can't really do that anymore. We need to just like get the paperwork in place, make sure a lawyer knows that we're not going to get Disney sued. <laughs> um, 
But I hope that might happen anyway. Who knows? I, maybe my memory is fuzzy, but I somewhat remember, I think you waxed someone's asshole on, on an episode. Don that Finale's? was at UCB. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. that was the stage shows. That, that was, was at UCB. We waxed Don Finelli's asshole live on stage at the UCB theater. And he's one of my best friends. I was just in his wedding party. And I think he, he honestly, he told me that he got in his car that night with another friend of ours and told her that he didn't want to be friends with any, with me anymore because it was so brutal <laughs> physically. It was bad. The woman I found to do it also, I don't think she had much experience being on stage. And I think she like came up with a system where she's like, this will like cut some corners and it'll make it quicker <laughs> for the show. But it really also made it much more painful for Don. It was really horrible. <laughs> And then later we did wax the human fish on public access, but we never got to his actual asshole. Right. And to, for people who are listening, home, human fish has a very hairy backside. Oh, human fish is a very hairy all-around person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, in the, so is so Don, is Don part of the show? Who actually from the from the cable access show has come with you? Uh, the cable access show, me, Shannon, Bethany, human fish, Murph. Meet me on the hoops. They'll all be there. And then on our production team, it's still, it's a weird thing. Like Jersey Dave, Banana Man, Rob Malone, the world's greatest dancer. Like all these people are serving pretty much the same functions they served on public access. Like, uh, and then behind the scenes, the people generating the ideas are still Noah and Drew and JD. We brought on our friend, um, Joe Firestone. So it's really, it really is the gang that got us here. And then as far as the UCB crowd goes, like Don Finelli and Will Hines, two very, very hilarious comedians who are a big part of the UCB show, and they kind of phased out during the public access show. I think they both just kind of had put a lot of time into it and wanted to do other things with their careers and their lives, and uh, they'll come and go, I'm sure, but the public access crowd is really solid, and they're still coming along, so it's nuts. It's really nuts. I give the network a lot of credit. Like I met with many networks in the five years that we were doing the show between UCB and uh, public access, and many production companies and things like that, and there's so many times where people would say like, well, we like this part of it, but will you change this? Like, would you be willing to host it and we'll bring in other co-hosts or all this stuff that never felt right. And Fusion really put their money where their mouth is and was like, bring the whole gang. Like, you guys have something special. There's a reason people react to it. Uh, and we don't want to tinker with it. We don't want to throw, you know, we don't want to spoil it. So we've definitely rebuilt the show and they've been a big part of those conversations. And there's a lot of things that do have to change, but at its core... They were down. They were like, come do what you do and bring the people you do it with. Let's uh let's cause some trouble. So you know, it's uh I'm curious about the changes. I I saw the test show last week, the last test show before the actual air. Uh and it's it seemed pretty much like a natural extension of the cable access. There were sex dolls. There were there was a lot of talking about uh your first time or not your first time. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um you know, and I think the the show, which is maybe a testament to where you come from with comedy. Uh, there are no jokes, but there's a lot of funny situations just by merit of being in an awkward and honest situation. Yeah, I think that's very true. I I, I think uh, it's weird because I'm a comedian and that's what I tell people ask me, what's your job? And comedian is my job. But I kind of have a weird aversion to jokes in a way. And I always have. And it's interesting to hear you state it like that. But yeah, we... Uh, we don't tell jokes so much as we kind of just create tension on stage and then poke holes in the tension and that's where the laughs come. But to me, I don't know. I feel like, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't like jokes. I don't like a thing where it's like, I know you want me to laugh and then I have to laugh or not laugh. Like I'd rather give them something else. Like I really started years ago um, when I was an improviser, this started. And I think it extended when I converted and became a stand up. Like, 
I really love the idea of making people laugh. And at the end of the day, that is what I crave when I get on stage or on camera in any way. But I like the idea of, of trying to give them laughter plus something else that's less certain. And that really, to me, like, like Andy Kaufman, I love, cause I always feel like you weren't exactly sure how you were supposed to react. Like David Letterman, I feel like a lot of his stuff, like you're laughing, but also he seems like he's being kind of mean to this guest or like, <laughs> why, why are you hassling your deli guy? Like, I find it really funny, <laughs> but that's really just a deli guy. I don't know exactly how to feel about that. And I think a lot of the things that influenced me the most were things where I really loved them and laughed at them, but also felt a little confused or like other emotions were getting manipulated along the way. So I really do try to play with that. I think it's kind of the most interesting comedy is stuff that makes you laugh, but also dresses that up in ways that maybe make it a little bit less of a cut and dry, black and white, we say something, you laugh experience. And TV in particular so much of TV is structured in a way where it's like, here's the joke and now you laugh and here's the laugh track to remind you to laugh. And to me, it's just like, I'd rather put trust in our audience. And I would ra- I kind of feel like I'd rather have an environment and I'd rather have a community where we can fail and the viewers are okay with that. I'd rather not force them to laugh. I'd rather say like, hey, we missed the mark and you didn't laugh. Call us up and yell at us about it. <laughs> Call us up and make fun of us on the air about how we're not doing great. That happened so many times on the public access show, and I think it actually led to some of the most interesting moments. And I think for my money, that's almost in a weird way, like, sure, we miss the mark sometimes and you might not laugh, but we're showing you so much more respect by making that a dialogue where you get to tell us that. To me, it just feels more respectful of your audience to say, like, it's up to you whether or not you want to laugh. We're going to try. And then you have to fill in your end of the equation. That just, to me, feels more human. It also just feels like that's kind of like a progression of where we've seen kind of comedy go in the last few years, like it's single camera, very few laugh tracks, uh, stand-up comics that are getting bigger, more storytellers. They have longer yeah. joke blocks. Um, you know, I think the monologue is one of the last bastions of that short form. And even to an extent, like Twitter has kind of become the replacement for that. I think so in a big way. And that's like I was saying before, like I think just modern viewers, like younger people than me, they grew up where like almost all the entertainment they consumed in their formative years had a box underneath where they could leave comments on it. Like most of the celebrities they really love, they follow on platforms where when the celebrity says something 10 seconds later, they can write back and be like, that wasn't funny. And that's just (laughs) part of the enjoyment for them. So I almost feel like it's, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that television hasn't built more platforms that, kind of recognize that because it's, I think just sort of how these people want their information delivered. It feels to me like it's almost like if I don't include them and make it more of a two-way experience, it to me, it feels like it would be a little bit condescending in a way. And maybe that's just me having a weird chip on my shoulder, but I want my audience to tell me how it works much more than I want to tell them how it works. But it's also somewhat a double-edged sword because too much reaction could change the craft and like there's no patience online in the internet comments. Like if you're working on a stand-up special or anything that's long form, you've got to like workshop it. And there's a lot of negative reactions that could come if they even hear it ahead of time. Oh, in a big way. Yeah. Like as a stand-up, I really fear stuff that I don't want getting out, getting out early. This show is specifically, the Gethard show is built specifically in a way that's meant to like kind of embrace the chaos of, of 2015 of the modern world <laughs> and how every six months there's a new thing that can allow people to invade your life. 
I like that and I want to do it. There's certain, like, even with Hannibal and all the Bill Cosby stuff, I was like, oh man, like, he's just working on that joke yeah. and now he has to, <laughs> and now his whole life has changed because of it. I'm sure. He's I'm defined sh- by a shaky phone camera. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Like, I'm sure if he could have worked on that joke a few more months, he would have had it even better. <laughs> um, so it's scary, but. This platform in particular, I think, is aimed at, like, let's take that and also throw a lot of fuel on that fire. So let's actually let's take a step back and kind of I don't want to say like Terrence Malick tree of life it, but let's kind of start from the beginning and work our way back here. OK, let's um, tree of life it. Yeah, tree of life it. But like tree of life beginning it. of time to now. Uh, OK. Uh, when when would you say your comedy career started? I would say my comedy career started. The seeds of it were planted when I discovered the UCB theater. And just for people listening, that's the Upright Citizens Brigade yeah. Theater. Upright Citizens Brigade is like probably like the, uh, I think it's still definitely fair to say it's kind of the big dog improv theater in New York and it's huge in LA. It's actually at this point fair to say that nationally it's one of the more influential like places to go learn comedy and uh, kind of build your career. And I discovered it when I was 20 years old, 19 years old, right on the cusp. Uh, I'd been doing comedy at Rutgers University in New Jersey I was in a short form improv group which is like games like you'd see on whose line is it anyway and it was really fun but the summer came and I wanted to keep going and I found out about UCB very very vaguely like online there wasn't much info it was just like oh these guys teach classes and they do a lot of cool stuff and I just without having ever seen a show there I just like sent them a check and signed up for a (laughs) class and it really changed my whole life changed my whole life like I was a very depressed young man in a very serious way. And UCB was the first environment I found where I felt comfortable um, kind of like having the passions I had. Like I came up in North Jersey. I grew up in North Jersey and it wasn't really like being an actor was a viable goal. There, I didn't see anybody around me who was in the arts. It wasn't part of my neighborhood. It wasn't part, you know, my my mom's parents were off the boat immigrants from Ireland. They had other things to worry about besides being artists, you know? So UCB was this thing that felt back then very much like, oh, these are like kind of outcasts and people who are really compelled to do this, driven to do this. And now UCB, I think, is a place where it's like people show up because they want to get on Saturday Night Live because there's been so much success that comes out of the place. I feel really blessed that I was there in an era where nobody was successful yet. I got to see all that happen and I was a very young man and all these people who I knew were like really funny people worked hard, who worked hard and I I got to see them go on to success like around me and it just was like to be that young and that driven in that environment while that environment also started to really produce a lot of attention. It was just like such a, such, it was kind of a one in a million thing for a kid who was as shy as I was and as depressed as I was to land in that community right in an era when it was still small enough that a kid like me could survive, you know? And what about, about what year was that? That was the year 2000. I took my first class at UCB in June of 2000. And who was that? Who was at the New York Theater at that point? Was it Zach Woods still? Was it no, there? Zach Woods hadn't started yet. Um, who was around then? That was still, like the big dogs were, the people whose names would jump out from when I first started would be like, Rob Riggle, Paul Shear, Rob Hubel, Andy Daly, um, many more people, Jason Mandzukas, um, that whole era, Rob Corddry. I think those are the names that people might 
know off the top of their heads from that era. And, and so many more talented people who have done many, many things, things I'm blanking on and also behind the scenes work and writing and commercials and tons of stuff. But those were kind of the guys leading the charge when I started. And then I was kind of right in the middle of a few generations and um, I was kind of like the junior member of that wave. And then right after me, that was Zach Woods and Bobby Moynihan. And uh, those were, those were my guys. And uh, those were the guys who I kind of look back on it. And those were like my dudes who I came up with. You know, and we'll jump back and forth a little bit, but uh, so many of those names you mentioned, like, I feel like a lot of their fame happened after they moved to Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. You've steadfastly avoided it. You've stayed in New York for this whole tenure. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I have. Uh, did you ever, like, especially when we were, we were transitioned from cable to, to fusion, did you consider moving to Los Angeles once and for all? I mean, I think about it all the time. You still think about it. Yeah, because I feel like Los Angeles is so much easier in so many ways. The weather is just so much nicer, <laughs> and there's more jobs to be had, just like, you know. You can't, it's hard to try to work in an industry if you're not willing to go to the place where the industry is primarily located. And that's for everybody. Like if you want to work for Coca-Cola, you probably move to Georgia, you know, like if you want to work for a startup, probably a smart idea to move out to Northern California, you know, like (laughs) you go where the jobs are. I've avoided doing that. And even, I don't know why, but it's weird. I remember one guy who I've always really looked up to is Eugene Merman. He's a really, uh, he's a, he's a standup and really has always done things his own way. And I'm not the closest in the world with Eugene. I'm friendly with him, but I have the utmost respect for him. And I remember once reading an interview with him where someone asked him, like, how come you've never moved to L.A.? You would really kill it out there. And he's like, yeah, I think I could probably get jobs if I moved to L.A., but they're not jobs that I would really have fun doing. And I read that and I was like, oh, that's what it is. Like, I think I could do well there. And a lot of my friends live there now. And I've done enough acting work and enough traditional work that I bet I could do well. I bet I could feel satisfied and happy there. But at the end of the day, those are not the jobs that I necessarily like crave. I'm not compelled to do those things. And there's a lot of other things that I am compelled to do that I think New York is just a better staging ground for. Like I think New York is still a place where unexpected things can happen to you every day. More than any other place in the country, I have to think. And that just kind of, I think, fits my mindset. Like, I really like knowing that if we walked out of here right now, there's probably some sort of art show or music show or something happening. It's happening right now. And if we walked around long enough, we'd stumble on it. I like that. And I think I'm a very manic guy and my creativity is rooted in stuff being a little unpredictable for me. And I think New York just feeds that. I think it feeds it. Like one of the earliest things that happened on the Chris Gethard show on public access was the second episode. This girl called and was like, I don't know if I like your show. And I was like, okay, (laughs) let's talk about it. And she was like, I think you guys are funny, but I don't really know what you're going for. And I was like, well, we're figuring it out. Like, where are you from? And she's like, oh, I live in Manhattan. And I was like, well, we're live. Like, why don't you jump in a cab? Come hang out in the studio. Maybe it'll make more sense. And then she showed up and she was really funny and she wound up being on the show 15 weeks in a row. We just made her a (laughs) cast member. And to me, like, that's New York City. Like, that I don't think happens too many other places. The infrastructure of New York where it's like, you can, why don't you leave your apartment, stick your hand out and a car will pick you up and take you to me right now and then we'll put you on TV. Like, I don't know that that happens both in attitude and infrastructure 
New York feels like it gives me what I need. So, you know, it's interesting. Like, there's like there's a creative benefit to public transportation that's 24 hours yeah. cabs and 40 and last call even. Like, it's a city that just doesn't sleep. So, oh yeah, and kind of crazy people. Oh yeah, they're still here. New York is way cleaned up than it was. Even I mean. I I started doing comedy in New York in 2000 and I moved here in 2004 and it's really cleaned up even since then. And it was already pretty, that golden age of grittiness was already gone, but you can still walk down the street and see crazy things and meet crazy people. And I don't, I don't, I really put that on a pedestal. I really see a lot of strength and power in that. I think if I lived in a city where I had to be in a car all the time or where it was like, you're going to go do this thing at five o'clock. So drive there, get there, do the thing, and then go to your next thing that's also scheduled. I feel like I could be happy with that, but I'd always have it in the back of my head that other stuff could be happening. Like what happens if you don't structure your life that much? And I also think just in a very basic way, like it's melodramatic to say, but this thing that we're about to do on Fusion is a project that I can say so firmly, I really believe in it. And like, I haven't gone to pilot season in four years because I really believed in this thing. And all I did was waste money on it. I lost tons of money and um, put so much time into it. But I believe in it so uh, hard. I believe in it so hard. And I just knew like, if I move before this thing is totally dead, I'll regret it forever. So I didn't want to leave New York and have any regrets. And uh, now that I get to do this show, maybe if this show comes and goes, I'll finally be happy moving or feel okay about it. But this felt like a thing that had potential and I did not want to give up on it. So I haven't moved. Was there, and we'll get back to the the career trajectory one day, uh, was there ever a point where you didn't think you would keep the Chris Guthrie show going? Maybe pre-fusion? Many times. I can think of probably like a half dozen times and it was always, always small, unexpected things that kept it happening. I mean, there was once, we once did an episode titled, should I keep doing this show where we took calls? Cause I was done. I was really done. If you watch that stretch of episodes, you can see I'm, they're not our best stretch because I'm not very enthusiastic. Cause I was really feeling a lot of pressure, but yeah, even when we were at UCB, it hit a point where I wanted to end it. And then someone told me about public access this friend of mine, a guy who I had taught in UCB classes years ago, he was like, I work at the public access station. I think you'd have a lot of fun. And we got there and it was this exhilarating thing. And then so many times and um, so many times where I've wanted to end it or thought about if I'm an idiot for doing it. And you have this weird thing too, because it's like, I did come up with a lot of comedians who are very successful and I'm very proud of what I've done, but I wouldn't say that I'm the most successful guy in the world. And you know, you have stretches of self-questioning, you have stretches where you wonder if people pity you because your career hasn't gone in the same direction there has. And, you know, I would say eight days out of 10, I've been super psyched that I've taken the chances I've taken. But those other two days, I'm like, man, did I ruin my career doing this? So a lot of questioning, but there's been a bunch of times, and I can say this so honestly, like most of the times when I felt really down, I will get an email from a kid who watches the show who will tell me something genuine about how they like it or that the show kind of a lot of the kids who watch the show I think really feel like maybe it speaks to them feeling a little restless or feeling a little dark at times and they'll tell me that and I just feel like right like anytime I've wanted to end this show it's been ego driven and born out of like a selfishness a sense of worrying about myself 
But anytime I kind of like take a step back from that and look at the community that we've built surrounding the show, it always makes me remember like, it's so pretentious to say, but like there's a thing bigger than me that this show has built and I can't ever question that. And that keeps me going. And I've met so many, so many comedians, so many musicians and so many kids who I never would have met otherwise. And, um, it's always been a net positive on my life. Maybe not on my bank account, <laughs> but on my life. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to take a step back real quick and kind of go back because like this did start, the Chris Gather show started as a, a stage show. But before that, uh, we went from UCB and you got on a house team. You started teaching. What yeah. was that trajectory like? That happened so pretty fast, right? It did. Yeah, I started at an era when there were just less students. Now at UCB, like... They have auditions for their teams, and I think over a thousand people audition every time. I think it was eight hundred last time. Eight hundred yeah. last time. That's nuts. And was that an invite only one? Uh, that invited? was not. That was the open. That was an open. Call. That's a small open call for UCB. <laughs> eight hundred people. I was there. They didn't have auditions. It was just like if you take a bunch of classes and you're good, they'll put you on a team because there's not that many people. And it was probably after about a year, I got on a team, and then six months later, I got put on another team, and that team was really good. Brian Husky, Seth Morris were on that team, and Jack McBrayer, who was on 30 Rock, he was on that team. And I was just 21 years old, so happy to be there, kind of too young and dumb to be intimidated. I should have been so intimidated. And at UCB, I was embraced very quickly because I was 20 years old, 21 years old, enthusiastic, and showed up, and I just really wanted it, and people thought I was good from the start, and I had a lot of support. So it was pretty smooth for me and I worked really hard so yeah was on a bunch of house teams started teaching and then started doing some shows where I was telling stories and that was my first solo work was kind of going up and doing like long-form stories and then because of my connections at UCB I was staging a lot of story shows where I'd invite some of the comics there used to be a place in New York called Rafifi which looking back on it was a very, very influential space for kind of alternative comedy. And that's where I got to know. I started doing shows where I like Joe Mandy, John Mullaney, Nick Kroll, Mike Birbiglia, um, Chelsea Peretti. I was doing a storytelling show at UCB and I would invite all those guys to do it because their style kind of lent themselves to it. And they, some of them started inviting me to do their stand-up shows. And then I started doing stand-up and just kind of spread the net wide with all the different things I was doing and wound up doing a show where I was telling an hour of stories and uh, that was at UCB and it was, it was going really well, but I'd been doing it for like a year and I was getting a little bored, a little restless. And, um, it was a weird thing cause that was the first time that I started building like a little bit of a cult following. Cause these kids would come to the storytelling show. It was this big gang of NYU kids and they were really just there every time. And so enthusiastic to kind of a weird degree. And, there's a show at UCB called Ask Cat. I started doing that and I was kind of the low guy on the totem pole at that show and it was a lot of celebrities doing it and they'd show up and they'd cheer me on and became this thing where I had this little group of NYU kids that was kind of like my fan club but they were tongue in cheek about it and it made me uncomfortable and they went on Facebook and they were all talking about me and they were like, you know, Gethard has all these stories about where he grew up in New Jersey. I wish we could all get on a bus and he'd take us to go see them and I was like, if you rent a bus, I'll do it, whatever. And was kind of like a little upset. I was a little embarrassed that I had this fan club that was ironic, that they knew it was funny <laughs> that I would have a fan club. So I was kind of like, yeah, rent a bus. I'll call you on your bluff. And then they did it. And in 2009, I did this show <laughs> where 60 people bought 
tickets and we all got on a bus and we ran around New Jersey and I'd tell stories about my life and then we'd halfway through the story, the bus would pull up at where the story took place and we'd all get off the bus and I'd finish the story like in this place that had some meaning in my life. And like probably the weirdest it got was we went into the basement of the house where I grew up and in front of all these kids, I was able to just say like, so... In 1997, there was a couch right here and I lost my virginity on it (laughs) in front of all these people. And it was this weird thing. And that got some press. And that was like the first thing where I think people noticed that I kind of had a more strange side and almost a little bit of like a mischievous, like almost like performance art interest. And I had done a few events like that before, but that was the one that just broke it open. So did did your family still own the house at the time? No, they didn't. It was some. It was, it was two families on. It wasn't even the people we sold the house to. So so you knock on the door like, hi, I have sixty people in a bus. Can we tell stories in your basement? Yeah, yeah. And the guy was like, <laughs> yeah, all right, man, whatever. And uh, it worked out. And then yeah, so that bus thing gave me this reputation for kind of just being a guy who will experiment. And then. Talked to the artistic director at the UCB, Anthony King, at the time. Good friend of mine, really helped build my career. I give him so much credit. And I said to him, I was like, I've been doing all the storytelling. I'm a little bored with it. I want to do something else. He's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I've always wanted to be a talk show host. Like, I'm obsessed with Conan. I'm obsessed with David Letterman. He was like, okay, look, like, I'll give you a talk show. But he's like, people always want to just do it. Like, they put on a suit, tell monologue jokes, and just make it like their version of those guys. He's like... I'll give you the talk show. You just got to promise me, like, use that for all your weird ideas. Like, you want to do more stuff like that bus, do it there. Once a month, do a weird thing. And he and the best advice, he said, you got to call it the Chris Gethard Show because your name is starting to become synonymous with kind of like weird out-of-the-box performance art comedy. And he's like, if you put your name on it, people will really know that you're this guy pushing this stuff. And it's one of the best pieces of advice anybody ever gave me. Um, because I think my name did come to be known for a little while as like, that guy does strange stuff. Go check out that show. He goes big with it. And it really just built, it built into my whole career. So I have Anthony King is a guy who I have to thank for that a lot more often than I do. What were the first, uh, Chris Gethard show episodes like at UCB? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see the very first one. My initial idea for the show was that it would kind of be closer to a traditional talk show, but that the interviews would be with people from my real life. Um, That was the twist I wanted to put on it. And the first episode ever, um, I had, I used to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes. So I had one of my Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors. Uh, He was a black belt. He's also a very intimidating man. He weighed about (laughs) 280 pounds. He came on the show and demonstrated moves on me. So he was like physically picking me up and throwing me hard across the (laughs) UCB theater. And people were freaked out. But right away from the first episode, I just invited a bunch of friends to come on and try stuff. And uh, Shannon O'Neill did a bit that I was like, whoa, that was crazy. That was awesome. Shannon O'Neill, who's now the uh, head of the school. She's the artistic director at UCB, and she still is my, my, my sidekick, my co-host on the show. And then Will Hines. I asked Will. Will's such a funny guy. And I was like, would you want to come on and be like our like news joke, like topical joke guy? And then I'll just constantly tell you it has no place in the show. And he was like you're asking me to do a thing in the show and telling me on stage you will sell me out for doing it. I was like, yeah. (laughs) And that went really well. And that was kind of like right away. People responded so hard to that, that I was like, wow, this is different. So the second episode of the show, um, I think we did a thing that one, I think I interviewed the girl who I had the worst date of my life with alive on stage. And we may, I don't, I don't know if that was also in the second edition or if we waited till the third one 
Will and I did a thing where it was called the Wheel of Degradation, where we had this whole thing where we would make fun of each other. I'd tell him he wasn't funny and the crowd loved it. So we built this whole game where it was a wheel and he and I had to spin it and you had to do a degrading thing if it landed on it. And that was the event that cracked it open. Like people loved that idea that like, oh, this guy, this guy is supposed to tell jokes on the talk show, but the host starts making fun of him and then they actually yell at each other. And then they get so mad that they spin a wheel and whoever loses this wheel thing has to do something horrible. I think that was the thing that made people realize like, I expected one thing when I showed up and I got something totally different. And from that point forward at UCB, it was just like, we'd put the show up, it would sell out. And New York just started supporting the show hard from so that point forward. This was what, 2011? That was 2009. 2009, okay. Yeah, and 2011 is when we switched to public access. Okay, so 2009, like, and you're getting known for like word of mouth at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about when you made the jump to cable access. And why yeah. did you actually? Why was, what was the impetus for that? Well, we'd been doing the show. It went really well. And the whole show at UCB was kind of weirdly defined by this thing that was not happening, which is a weird thing to say, but if you'll bear with me, it's a confusing thing. Basically, Christmas Eve of 2009, I was really bored. I was at my parents' house and I tend, I have, I have some mental issues and sometimes I will get really manic and I will just fly off the handle and do a thing. And 2009, Twitter was just kind of starting out. It had been around a while, but it was still, it was not a thing that had become institutional as much yet. And I was poking around it and I'd only been on it for a week or so. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is cool. And I started following celebrities just to see like, oh, this is funny. That This person's funny. And I followed um, a bunch of random people and I started to realize like, oh, you can tell which people type their own tweets and which people use publicists. <laughs> you can just tell. In 2009, you could just really see that some people were like, oh, I'll just do this, whatever. And Al Roker clearly typed his own tweets. And I was like, that means Al Roker checks this thing. Like he looks at this. So I just tweeted at Al Roker like, hey, I do a show at this comedy theater. It's called The Chris Gethard Show. You want to come do it? And he wrote back right away. He was like, sounds fun, but it's not my thing. Good luck with it. And I was like, Al Roker wrote, what the heck? Like people actually check this thing. So that sent me into like a manic, like I was like giddy. I was like, oh my God, what can I do with this? I, just, I felt like I just realized this thing about it. And I was like, who's the most unattainable person on Twitter? I started looking around and I was like, okay, the person who is most out of my league who clearly does his own tweets is Diddy. Like if you read <laughs> Diddy's tweets back then, some of them would clearly be promo stuff that maybe someone else handled. Right. But there'd be a lot where it would just be like, um, like got home late, nothing in the fridge, SMH, got to go back out for food. Like, and you'd be like, oh, that's not, Diddy's typing on this thing. So I tweeted at Diddy, hey, you should come do the show. I actually made a video where I was like, I would love it if you would come do my show because look at me, like I'm a big dork. You're the, one of the coolest people ever. You'd throw huge, massive parties and you have all these videos that's you in hot tubs with girls. Like how cool would it be if you hung out with me for one night? Like if people could see that a guy like you was down to hang out with a guy like me for one night, I think it would just make them feel good. I think it would just show that the world has the potential to surprise you. And people saw that video and on Twitter they started to really um, – flip out. And a lot of the, it started with a lot of UCB kids and then it just kind of spread. People started tweeting at Diddy, man, come do this show. It'll be cool. And eventually he answered. He was like, who is this guy? What are you guys talking about? 
and it led to this very surreal thing where he called me on the phone and uh, he was like, what's your show? And I explained it to him and he, I'll never forget. He ended the conversation. I was like, he's like, I think I'm going to come do it. It sounds cool. And I was like, that's amazing. I think people are going to flip out. So cool of you to do it. Thank you. And he just pauses and goes, ask and ye shall receive. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> so then he goes on Twitter and millions of people followed him. I also will look back and say, I don't know if this was the first one, but I think this was one of the early examples of like a Twitter campaign working. Mm. I think they have become kind of a notoriously annoying thing. But I think back then the idea that a whole bunch of people asked a guy to do something, it was still new enough that it was like, oh, this is weird. Like, he didn't react poorly to it. And then when it worked, I think people were like, oh, like magic just happened. Something, but it really, it wasn't magic. It was just like, we asked this guy and he said, yeah, like shows why technology is such a cool game changer. And it's part, I think it also shows why I'm so addicted to using technology in my show to this day. But he said he would do it and he tweeted it out to like 2 million people. So then that, all these blogs were writing about it. And then the best thing that ever happened to me, looking back on it, it stressed me so out. It stressed me out so much. He never got in touch with me again, and I couldn't get in touch with him. He gave me his assistant's number, but he didn't tell his assistant what was going on. Oh no! So she thought I was insane. She later told me she thought I was insane because I would call and be like, "Hey, like, I asked Diddy on Twitter to come do a show in uh, this basement theater, and he said yeah, and he's not getting back to me. So get back to me with a date because I'm really psyched and I want to organize it." And she thought I was a crazy person who was stalking Diddy. No joke, because he just never mentioned it. So for 13 months, there was this thing of like, people would ask me, is Diddy coming? And I'd go, I don't know. He doesn't get back to me ever. He might just show up. I don't know. And it wasn't me trying to milk it. It was legit. And that was a big part of why people showed up every month. It was a monthly show. People would buy tickets ASAP because they were like, what if this is the one where Diddy comes? That would be so <laughs> cool. I don't want to miss it. And it added to the legend of this show. So in January of 2011, he finally showed up. So for all of 2010... It was like, where's Diddy? Where's Diddy? And then he finally showed up. And it was one of the best nights of my life. He was so amazing, so funny, and just so gracious about it. Really sweet guy. Any hype or legend that precedes him does not replace the fact that in my experience, he was such a smart, funny, giving, kind guy. It was a great, great night in my life. But then after that, I think a lot of the crowd that had been coming to the UCB show over and over again was like, oh, that felt like the conclusion. Like that feels like the end of the show. So we did a few more of them and they were good shows and we were still working so hard on them, but the crowd wasn't sold out anymore. There would be, I'd look up and see, oh, there's 10 empty seats. And I was just like, well, maybe the Diddy thing was the end. Maybe that's the natural conclusion. And maybe I should kind of end this thing now while it's still hot and have it be a fond memory rather than let it get to a place where it's like, we're only getting 40 people and it's not what it was and kind of let it end sad. So I was ready to end it. And I was in a bar one night, McManus on 7th Avenue, which is a bar that a ton of comedians hang out at. And this friend of mine was like, you know, I come and see your show all the time. And uh, he's like, I work at the public access station and your show would be the best public access show. And I grew up kind of addicted to some local TV and some some like uh, ECW wrestling you could find on the UHF channels. Mm -hmm. And in New Jersey, there was a guy, Uncle Floyd, who had like his own show that he made. It wasn't public access, but it was like on UHF and... Uh, Steam Pipe Alley was this thing on Channel 9 in New York that was Mario Cantone hosting this really weird kid show and they all felt like kind of like thrown together homemade shows and I always really loved it and I always loved the idea of public access and I was just like yeah you think my show would be good on public access and he's like yeah and I was like well what what is like what is it and he was like what it is is like you could do your show live if you want you could take calls 
there's four cameras in the studio and there's like no rules. He's like, nobody realizes it. So public access provided a lot of the equipment. Tons of it. And I was like, well, what do I have to do? Like, how much does it cost to rent? And he's like, dude, it's public access. It's totally free. <laughs> and I was like, there's a, there's a studio where I can have four cameras and for take calls for free. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, why doesn't anyone do it? And he's like, it's tons of paperwork. It's like tons and tons of paperwork. And I realized that I learned that about public access so quick. It's like, there's tons of paperwork and you have to take classes. And I think they think that's going to mean only people who are really serious will do it. But really it's only people who have nothing but time on their hands who are crazy. So they get tons <laughs> of crazy people. Cause like most people do not have the time to fill out that much paperwork and deal with that many follow-ups and phone calls and then take classes and then do it. Most people who are creative are like, I'll, I'll just go do a stage show or I'll just, I'll go write something and put it elsewhere. So they get a lot of lunatics, but it was a really good environment for us. I tell you, it was a perfect environment for us. There so were, much of it was just because it was free and there were no rules. I was like, there, well, there were a few rules, like no nudity. You had to fill the slot every week. Was that what it was? Not even. If oh, we maybe. wanted to put up a rerun, we could do that. Okay. Um, it was no nudity, no liquids in the studio, which again, they don't want anything breaking. They right. let us waive that rule. No animals in the studio. We broke that rule a couple times. <laughs> Really, the only one we never tested was nudity. And even that, even that, they were like, you can't have, you can have pre-taped nudity, but you can't have any sexual contact or even contact with your genitals. And I was like, okay, like what constitutes a sexual contact? And they were like, well, what's, what's your specifics? They were like, give us specifics. And I was like, let's say I had two completely naked men and I took one piece of saran wrap, placed it into them, and they both placed their nude penises on either side of the saran wrap. And they were like, yeah, those aren't touching. That's fine. And I was like, so I could have two naked men touching bodies as long as there's a single piece of clear saran wrap between their bodies. They were like, good to go. Wow. Yeah. The rules there are so slim. And it's weird because, you know, it's easy to paint the narrative of like, it's because it's this crazy lawless place where it's full of psychopaths. But there is some element of that, but the truth is that the actual people who run it and the actual reason it exists, because it's the most, I cannot think of a more pro-free speech, pro-empower-a-community organization or concept than public access. Like, the real reason there's no rules is not because it's nuts. The real reason is because they put their money where their mouth is, and they're like, go for it. And their official policy, the thing they tell everybody is like, here's the rules. You can break them once. Like, they won't even stop you. It's actually really beautiful. I didn't know for years. A lot of the real higher-ups there, because they have like public access's version of the Emmys and we won a few, and I'm really genuinely proud of it. And some of the higher-ups would come and thank us. Some of the guys who ran the studio ran the whole station. And I'd be like, thank you for letting us do this stuff. It's so cool. And they were like, yeah, like sounds like your show is really good. And I started to pick up like, you guys don't watch the show. The way you phrase <laughs> it is always like, it sounds like you've been doing cool things. And I finally was like, I guess it kind of hurts my feelings that like none of you guys watch it. And we've been like winning these awards. And that guy, one of the real higher ups, he goes, no, I, I don't watch it. Cause it's actually a mandate. Like I schedule the shows. I put the shows on TV and I never watch them. And I was like, why? And he goes, well, if I watch them, then I might get personally offended by something or it might not fit my taste. And I might be, I might be tempted to find a reason to remove it because of my own personal politics or my own personal taste. And that's not in our charter. He's like, it's not up to what I think or what anybody thinks. It's what this person wants to do. So I, as a rule, don't watch any of the shows on the network so that there's no temptation for censorship at all from the people who can censor it. Like basically, anybody who has the ability to censor Manhattan Public Access, 
opts out of watching it so that censorship is never a factor. I had no idea. That's incredible. It's awesome. It's such a cool punk rock thing. And they say, like, you can break a rule once. We'll have to remove you. If you get naked, if you if you get on and you you have somebody perform oral sex on you on the network, yeah, you you'll, you will get kicked off. But if you really think it's worth doing for some sort of political reason, like, you can do it one time. You'll get kicked off. You'll sacrifice your show. And they don't have seasons. Like, if we wanted our show to run forever, there's people who have had shows on public access for 30 years and they don't get removed. And some of their shows are incomprehensible. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is not to make good programming. The point is to give someone a show and a voice, even if they are insane. And it's weird. A lot of people always said to me, like, would ask, like, why don't you just do the show on the internet? Because then you can maybe sell some ads. Like, we started getting some really great press and it became frustrating because it was like, you know, podcasts can get ads from people and homemade things can get ads. We couldn't. You're not allowed to advertise on public access and I would say, you know, like it's different than the internet because it's TV. I want a TV show. I don't want an internet show. And also there's like a methodology and philosophy behind this that does provide some infrastructure and in some ways some protection that I really believe in. I came to really believe in public access so we stayed there a real long time, even when we could have probably could have jumped ship about a year in or a year and a half in and started trying to do it as a video podcast and sell ads and didn't feel right. Never felt right. Never felt like anybody was offering us enough to make it worth that jump. But public access offered you nothing. I mean, they offered you equipment. So that is a huge Equipment, overhead. huge. We couldn't have afforded to rent that studio. That studio is actually one of the best TV studios in New York is what I've been told. Although there's not one person on earth who understands how everything works. <laughs> so you'll never get anybody there. And also sometimes people just like, we came in one day, I'll never forget. And they were like, so there's a situation. And sometimes that happens at public access. So I'm like, what's going on tonight? And they're like, the microphones are here. We know this because when we listen on the soundboard, they're on. We don't know where they are. <laughs> we don't know where they are. So you don't, you don't have any... Lav mics tonight. You have two handheld microphones to do your whole show. And we were like, all right. So there's definite drawbacks, but the positives outweighed the negatives. And yeah, you couldn't make any money off of it. It's part of the deal. And I actually just edited it up. Like last week, I went through. We, we would sell some t-shirts and stuff. We could never mention it on the show. Sold t-shirts and posters and hoodies. And we took donations. And I added it up and... um. Like our whole run in four years, donations, t-shirts, sales, all of it, we made $19,000 in four years, which is nothing to sneeze at. But I promise you that I personally spent way more than that, way more than that and building the show. numbers and what, dozens now at this point? Yeah. By the end of the public access show, there were about 30 people who worked on the show every week between cast and crew. And right. most of them are still working on the show, which I'm very proud of. And now they can be paid for it. Yeah. And not... You know, nobody, myself included, is getting rich, but we get an opportunity to do it our way for real. And that's worth everything to me. There's a lot of people who work on this show who actually, there's a couple guys who left jobs where they were getting paid better because they believe in this show more. And that's the type of thing that I'm like, I need to get it right. And I need to make these people proud because they're sacrificing for this thing with my name on it. So so let's talk about the, the jump to TV. And I, I, I think it's interesting because you do embrace technology a lot, but 
there seems like a steadfast drive that you wanted to be on TV. Like this is yeah. like, this seems like a goal from your life from the get go. Everything I've read about like is the goal to get TV. Yeah. Um, were there other offers? I mean, there's there's the mythical Comedy Central pilot that Comedy Circle still talk about. Yeah, we shot a pilot for Comedy Central, and I was really proud of it. I think it went really well. I watch it, and there's a lot of things I really like about it. And uh, I think ultimately, it was not a Comedy Central vehicle. Like, the idea that we were going to take calls and it was going to be totally chaotic, I don't think it was quite something they were ready to take a chance on. And uh, that's fine. They still, a lot of the people there have been very kind to me and I don't begrudge them. I was a little surprised. I felt like the pilot went really well. And like our pilot taping, a girl flew from Brazil, kids came from San Francisco, from Honolulu, from Canada to attend a pilot taping. And all the Comedy Central people on the set were like, what's going on? And I was just <laughs> like, it's not, it's not, this is not, we are not trying to create buzz when we say we have a cult audience like people we don't have a huge audience but they will fly from brazil to come do this thing wow it was cool and they were impressed but then i think you know you start to send it up the chain where corporate people and marketing people see it and they're like we don't know exactly what to do with this and it makes sense to me it's a very new thing it's very different and i'm proud of that but i understand it so ultimately it wasn't for them and then yeah we had meetings with so many other people and can you name any of them? I don't know if yeah, it like, works on that. Who else? I know like IFC. IFC actually IFC actually gave me this big development deal where for a year they made me their kind of public face of their marketing and optioned a book, uh, optioned me to write a script based on a book that I wrote a couple years ago. And they wouldn't, they had us pitch the Gethard Show three times. Even a company that was making me their public face for a year <laughs> would not, me, Chris Gethard, they wanted to be the face of their advertising. They called it an adopt-a-comic program. They were adopting me for a year, making me their guy. Would not do the Chris Gethard show, which to me felt so crazy. But they basically gave me a salary for a year where I kept working on it on public access and didn't feel that total financial, you know, so many times where I was like, I might need to move to LA just because I can't pay the rent. And IFC saved me. I give them so many thanks for that. But I kept working on this show for a year while they did it. And... um I did a lot of other stuff for them too. I wasn't just stealing their money, but yeah, IFC was a big one. Another one where I was like, you guys like me so much. Why won't you like the show? And then, yeah, we pitched it to a bunch. MTV, MTV was like, oh, there's something really cool here. Maybe we could have like, you could change it in this way or that way or this way. And it just, the changes were so much that I was like, we're not talking about my show. Sci-fi was very nice to me. Sci-fi was like, we really love you. You're doing cool stuff. Maybe you could change the show this way or that way. And at the end of the day, there were some conversations where it was like, if I pursued them, there might have been some discussions of like ways for me to kind of springboard into a similar thing. But I really, I would always cut those conversations off because it was like, if it's not Shannon and it's not JD and Noah and Drew behind the scenes, and if Bethany and Murph and the human fish aren't there, it's not my show. So if you want to have a conversation about me personally doing something or helping to construct something new, but we can't call it the Chris Gethard show. And I can't tell the audience that cares about this thing that it is that because it won't be that. So there were a bunch of them that were like very nice and tried to tried to maybe workshop their version of the idea in a way that I appreciate it, but ultimately wasn't right for me. And then there were a few other networks that were just like, "This is really out there, man. This is not our thing," you know. Were, were you uh, were you shopping it around, or were people approaching you at this point? Both. We um, we ultimately. We shopped it around pretty hard once we linked up with um, Funny or Die. 
I get, I, you know, I do, I know I've been around long enough that I'll do some acting parts on shows and movies. And I did the real, I did a part in Anchorman 2 that was so small, it actually only made the extended cut. But while I was on the set, Adam McKay was like, dude, your show's really great. How's it going? And I was like, I didn't know you knew about it. He's like, yeah, I don't watch all the episodes, but a lot of the clips you post, I think are really cool. Like, it's really different. It's like the type of comedy I wish there was more of. And I was like, thanks, that means so much. And he's like, is anybody helping you pitch it? And I was like, no. And he's like, can I help? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And this was years into it. I was like, yes, please, yes. <laughs> so he got on board and Funny or Die got on board. And then right around that same time, separately from that, Zach Galifianakis did the show. And he was like, I'd love to help you make this your thing if you want that, because it's really cool what you've built. And just this like team of people kind of converged to help it in a very kind-hearted way. They're not making much money off this show, but they were just like, we want to help you because it's you were working hard on it and there's something interesting about it. So once that team came into place, we really started pitching it hard. And it was pretty quickly after that, that, you know, a lot of the networks had sniffed around prior to that, some of them multiple times. And people always appreciated what the show was. I'll never forget though, Fusion, I pitched it to them and I'd gotten used there. I'd been, a, I'd done enough of these things that people would be like, change it this way, change it that way. We like this part. We don't like that part. Fusion just kind of looked at each other and I told them about, I want so much of it to be driven by the internet and kids participating and letting people guide it, point it where it wants to go. And I just saw, I was like, oh, they just like, these two guys I'm pitching it to just looked at each other. I was like, oh, I'm talking about things that they've talked about. I could tell. And then right when I was done, I'll never forget the two development guys, Wade and Alex, who have, uh, I, they have really saved my life in many ways. They gave me this opportunity. They looked at each other and they just go, they turn around and Wade goes, we think we can help you cause the type of trouble you're trying to cause, man. And I was like, oh, this network gets it. And that has proven very true. If you sniff around with Fusion politically, they're really doing a lot of stuff. Their documentary program programming is very, uh, just like very in line politically with what I believe. They're doing a lot of stuff where they let people shoot footage of themselves. They have a new show up coming up where it's literally documentaries people shoot about themselves that they're going to put on TV. And then all their bloggers that they're hiring are like really people who try to, I think, rabble rouse a little bit. And, and I think my reputation precedes me enough. I would not say that stuff just to thank a network for picking me up. I really believe it. If it was a network that gave me a show and I didn't believe in the rest of their stuff, I'd be happy to never mention it. <laughs> but they, I think, really are on TV and on their blogging platforms. They're taking some chances, and I hope I hope that the chance they're taking on me is one I can make them proud of, and I hope I help prove them right for, for taking the chance on me. And is this going to be... So now that we're at the, the Fusion show, and we're kind of wrapping up, so how many episodes to the order? Do you get a full year? We get point? 10 episodes. We get like okay. a solid season. We get 10 chances to get it right. And, uh, it's great it, to have that commitment of like, we know this is a thing that needs to kind of live and build and find itself and it, and kind of build its own mythology. They gave us 10 episodes. They put a lot of faith in us. They just start. I just started getting tweets that they started putting commercials on other networks. Like a friend of mine, texted me like I saw I just saw a commercial for your show on ESPN what is going on and it's so weird that we have this public action show and they're getting behind it but I think they were able to look past all the technical difficulties of public access and all the like charm of the fact that things go wrong and we have no budget they were able to say they were able to really see like you guys are trying something really progressive and if it works it'll work big let us try to help I'll never be able to thank them enough okay so you're run, you're doing a run through the summer yeah. Uh, and then there's the option to pick it up again afterwards, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, so 
let let's let's look farther in the future. Uh-huh. If this doesn't get picked up, is this is this the end of the Gethard show? Is this where you move to stand up and storytelling? I don't even know. I feel like it's if it doesn't get picked up, it is the end of the Gethard show only because there's not. I think I kind of legendarily have thrown myself against the wall trying to make it happen for years, for five years now. And it's finally happening in a way that I always hoped it would. And I would actually be, I actually feel like it would be reflective of, of um, like mental illness if I kept trying to do it after this. Like I feel like I will be at peace with how this goes. And a lot of that is because Fusion is cool enough. They're letting us do it our way in a real sense where I, I won't walk away from this being like, well, that wasn't the show I really wanted to do. This will be the show I really wanted to do. They're not, they're not trying to interfere with that at all. They're empowering me to go do the show I want to do. So I'll be able to walk away. I feel like if it doesn't get picked up, the real question for me is like, do I keep doing comedy? Do I go to LA? Do I do more stand up, Or do I just like disappear and move back to New Jersey and try to have a couple kids and be happy just like work a regular job and like let this be my legacy and know that I tried. That to me is the big question, you know? My wife is like, you're, you talk a good game, but you're like, you're, she's like, you would go insane if you didn't get to be creative. And I'm like, well, I think I've kind of gone insane while I've been creative. (laughs) So I don't know that there's a way out of that, but I don't know. I don't know. It's either probably if this doesn't get picked up, I'm either going to move to LA or I'm going to disappear from the entertainment industry and just go try to live a more relaxed life. Wow. On that horribly ending. Uh, is that sad? Was no, that really no, sad? No, that's, it's, it's honest. I don't it's want it. it to be sad. I don't think it's I sad. Just I, kind think of, it's, I think it's honest. I don't know. Like Maybe it's easy to get caught up in, but it's like I kind of feel like this show is the reason why I got into this. Kind of just looking at from when I started, when I was 19, 20 years old till now, this show really has helped connect me with people and I think it's given people something. I don't know if I'll ever do that again. I don't know that I have the energy or the ideas to do that again. So maybe this is all I needed to do. I mean, it almost in a hopeful way. I don't want it to be a bummer and sad. I want it to be like, yeah, mission accomplished. I did this thing that I wanted to do. When I, I was weird, like when I started at UCB when I was 20, I remember feeling like I just want to be able to like make the type of thing that I would have loved when I was 15. And this is that show. This is a show I would have loved when I was a sophomore in high school. So I don't know if I, I don't know what else I can do after this or what else I want to do after this. This was always the safety net. This was always the long-term goal. So I don't know. They give us a hundred episode pickup and I just do it for years. Then it goes into syndication and it becomes a cultural cornerstone and people see it as this um you know next great step in the evolution of the talk show and i become uh i become a a piece of american culture and i represent something larger than myself that's the other option it's really one or the other there's no middle ground this one that or i disappear and live in the woods (laughs) thank you so so much for listening if you liked this please search verge extras in itunes or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and hear more 